Forced marriage is forbidden according to Jewish law. But the narrow halachic definition still leaves plenty of room for coercive marriage. And it happens every day. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. The Orthodox Conundrum and Intimate Judaism co-produced this episode, which deals with the very serious problem of forced marriage, social pressure, and problems with the shidduch system as it's manifested in certain Hasidic communities. Tali Rosenbaum and I interview Eve Sachs and Yehudas Fletcher, who authored an important position paper which explains the problem of forced marriage legally and morally and suggests specific solutions. Additionally, Tali and I recorded a brand new episode of Intimate Judaism where we discuss how the idea of forced marriage and forced sex can exist even outside of the Hasidic world. We discuss how, at times, young men and young women can feel pressured to marry when they might not be sure, they may not be ready, they may not even be straight. So please listen to that. It's episode 31 being released today on Intimate Judaism. Before we get to the interview, let me remind you to please subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please like The Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join The Orthodox Conundrum discussion group. I would also appreciate if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. Just give us hopefully five stars and write one or two sentences telling everybody why this is a great podcast. And finally, please consider becoming a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. Leading up to Pesach, I'll be releasing a large number of special bonus podcasts with insights into the Haggadah exclusively for Patreon subscribers. So please sign up today. You'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Tali and I are honored to welcome our two guests, Yehudas Fletcher and Eve Sachs, who authored a position paper on forced marriage, as is practiced in certain Jewish communities. The paper was released by Nachamu about a month ago. I'll ask you about that organization as well. It explains the problem of forced marriage and advocates for very specific solutions, in particular in the UK, although some of the solutions are applicable across the globe. Yehudas Fletcher is a social and political activist, co-founder of Nachamu, an independent sexual violence advisor at Migdala Muna, and a student of social policy at Salford University. Eve Sachs is a social activist, co-founder of Nachamu, chair of trustees of Jofa UK, and a chartered accountant. And she also tells me that she exercises in a way that some might find compulsive. So welcome, Eve and Yehudis. Thank you for coming on the show with us today. Thank you for having us. I'll open up by asking some questions, which actually might sound quite simple or have obvious answers. I want to ask them anyway, so that everybody listening and watching knows exactly what we're all talking about. I'm sure that there are many people who are shocked by the title of forced marriage. Someone already reached out to me and says, how is that possible? We all know that forced marriage is not allowable by halakha. In Jewish law, if the husband forces a ring on a woman, she's not married. So I want to ask you a very simple question. What do you mean by forced marriage, which you say really does exist? I'm going to answer that, uh, Robert Scott. Um, We use the term forced marriage because we have legislation in the UK so when we say forced marriage, we're literally, it's, it's just a technical term that is, is used already in legislation to describe certain practices. And what we do is, it's, it's not really a value judgment, although forced marriage is obviously wrong, but we're just using the term that the, that the UK legislation already uses. And we're also raising awareness. A lot of people don't know that forced marriage is a crime. So they might say, well, we're just, you know, we're just, this, this is our cultural practice. And actually, first of all, we're drawing attention to harmful cultural practices. Like just because something is your cultural practice doesn't mean um, it's, it's something that should be continued. And secondly, this is the name that the government has given to it. If the government had decided to call it Code Purple, we'd be calling it Code Purple. Okay, then in that case, even though that might be a legal technical term, I want to know what you mean by forced marriage. And in particular, I'm going to mention something that you wrote up in your position paper. You talk about five different markers that indicate forced marriage. So I want to ask you to tell our audience what those five markers are and also whether 
Is that the definition of a forced marriage? Does it require all five? Any of the five? Is having one of these markers indicative of forced marriage? Or is it more complicated than that or more nuanced than that? So what, what does that mean for you, forced marriage? So we came up with the five markers because it was really important to us that we didn't start labeling whole communities. And we wanted to look at practices that were going on rather than saying it happens in the Haredi community. So what we're saying is when we see these markers of forced marriage, that indicates that we're falling into the government's definition. Now, we've not said whether you need all five or whether you need two of the five or three of the five, but these are markers that are indicative that the young people getting married don't have the full and free um can't give the full and free consent that the legislation requires them to give. So the things that we were looking at um, as these markers was, first of all, um, the expectation to marry the person they're introduced to. So the the way this has been described as, you know, they have this introduction, the bashow, and actually, even before they've met each other, the food might be laid out on the table. Or the young person intuitively understands that if they were to say no to this person or to a subsequent person, the quality of the matches in decline. So there's this real expectation that the first person is going to be better than the other person. Um, The other things that we speak about are rushed decision making. So if you can call it decision making, but, you know, only one or two meetings. So no chance to get to know the person. So you don't know what, how can you give a full and free consent when you don't know the person you're agreeing to marry and spend the rest of your life with? Um, we speak about also a situation where after the young couple are engaged, they're then banned by their parents from seeing each other again. In some communities, they might even be banned from speaking on the telephone freely. So you're talking about, um, and we've, we've had, you know, dozens of people telling us this, they ended up on their wedding day under the chuppah and then in bed that night with somebody they had met for less than an hour beforehand and didn't know anything about. We talk about um, a tenoim contract. So this is a binding agreement between both sets of parents, generally the fathers, to bring their children to the chuppah to set future date. Um, with, and there's consequences for a breach. It might be financial consequences. It might be spiritual or harem consequences. And again, since we put the paper out, we've had people contacting us to confirm that they were told that it's better to go through with the wedding and then divorce than to break an engagement agreement. And that there are cultures within the Jewish community where breaking an engagement is seen as being really, really serious. So, the, you know, these are the five things. What brings them together is what I mentioned at the beginning, the idea of not being able to give the full and free consent because they're tied in in these ways. And we picked up on these things as these are all common practice in some Hasidic groups. Um, but also these are all things which were designed to take away the autonomy um, from the young person who's getting married so that they are pushed into the, the marriage without really being able to make any decision for themselves. Yeah, and I, the only thing I would add to, to what Eve said is that these often happen in, in the, these are sort of typical of some Hasidic groups or, or many Hasidic groups, but they can happen outside. They could happen in the literature community. They could happen in other parts of the community. And also you could be Hasidic and not practice any of this. So just to like reiterate what you said earlier, we're not saying if you had a Hasidic shidduch, that was a forced marriage. We're saying if the cat fits, wear it. If you didn't experience this, if, if you did not have a tenoyim, if you were allowed to meet freely after, um, after you got engaged, if you were allowed to meet as many times as you wanted, if you had the benefit of that, amazing. I'm really, really happy for you. Not everyone has that opportunity. And there's a name for not having that opportunity and it's called forced marriage. I just want to say bravo. I mean, that's amazing that the two of you are doing this. First of all, I'm sure our listeners would be really interested to know a little bit more about how you got into this. What was your inspiration? What made two lovely young women decide to dedicate so many resources to what's going on in a culture in which I understand you don't live? Or maybe there's more to it than that. I'm going to start and then I'm going to let Yehudis continue. I met Yehudis around five years ago now on a course at LSGS called the Susie Bradfield Women's Leadership Course. And it was um, every Wednesday night. She was still living in Stanford Hill and I gave her a lift back to Brent Cross Station each week and we sat and chatted in the car. My activism was just personal, wasn't through any organisation at that point. And Yehudis was also had her own activism, which she can talk about. But I guess that was the beginning of a great friendship and a great opportunity to, to get to know Yehudis and work with her and lobby with her. When, when I 
was on the Susie Bradfield course at that point, I was talking primarily about the cover-up of sexual abuse in the Jewish community. As I was doing that, I began to talk also about just general autonomy and the overlap between lack of autonomy and sexual violence is forced marriage. Um, and it was through conversations with Eve and thinking about how, okay, so these are systemic harms that are occurring. These are not individual cases of bad actors. We can actually identify systems here that are allowing lots of people to really not necessarily because they're bad or evil or want to hurt their family members or community members but but are causing great harm to people that they actually love and care about and forced marriage is one of those systemic harms and we decided to act on it first because we felt it was the it, it affects almost you know, in terms of numbers, like if we're talking about the cover up of sexual abuse, not everybody is going to be sexually abused at all. Like numbers wise, obviously one person is one person too many, but not everybody is going to be sexually abused. But when it comes to forced marriage, every person in the Haredi community has there's a universal expectation of early marriage. So defining what force looks like and which of those early marriage practices are inherently harmful was really important and really urgent. And that's why we decided to do it first. We actually didn't plan an enormous campaign. We decided to write the paper. And in order to do that, you know, it went through lots of different drafts. We did a soft yeah. release a couple of years ago. So we, we, we released a sort of early version around two years ago and we shared it widely in the community because we really didn't want to surprise anybody with this like we, you know we're not really into surprises so you know we sent it to sort of all the sort of key stakeholders including you know community organizations around two years ago and we invited comments on it but then I guess it became our lockdown project because obviously we gave people time to come back with comments and then we sort of pushed forward into getting yeah. the final version. Let me ask you about that then. Did you have a lot of pushback when you sent it to community organizations? Oh, well, I mean, like some organizations said, well, the funny that you heard us was talking about the technical term was, oh, can you not just call it coerced marriage instead? I was like, well, th this is how it's defined in law. So no, not really. Um, as I said, if the government had called it coerced marriage, then okay. But, you know, that, a lot of the pushback was, an acceptance that it's happening, but wish we wouldn't call it forced marriage. Yeah, I mean, no, mm -hmm. these are practices that no one's actually going, well, some people have done, but it, it's futile to try and flatly deny that that people, that many people are only allowed to, to meet during the show, which often is, the, is as short as 20 minutes. I mean, an hour would be considered a luxury for some. Um, it's not about denying that these things happen. It's about denying that they are inherently harmful. And then also there's the second stage saying, yeah, it would be great if we didn't have that, but we don't know how to change it. And also we're worried about the impact of you using this terminology. Just to make this a broader conversation, and after all, I do have some amount of clinical experience with Hasidic people and also Haredi people across the spectrum who have been in these arranged marriages. And obviously, if they're coming to me, we can already determine that there might be some issues that come from that particular template. But there are a few things I want to say. One is, is that very seldom is the marriage as being non-autonomous in a vacuum. Usually what I find is the young women who did not have autonomy in their decision to get married or the decision that was made for them to get married are the same young women that did not have autonomy in most things in their lives. And that this may not so much be a religious or Haredi or Hasidish issue as much. I mean, there's that. But on a micro level, it may have more to do with family dynamics, narcissistic parents, or other kinds of dynamics in which agency and autonomy is not given to the children at all about other things. And that in some Hasidic families, if a young woman is not interested, she, she can say no. In fact, I mean, I didn't grow up. Hasidish or Haredi, but I did go to a Beis Yaakov school, and we were always told that we learned from the story of Rivka that you always ask the woman, you know, she has to give consent to get married, and that this was a basic 
Jewish value. So I'm just wondering what you might want to say about that. That's my first comment. My second comment really obviously does have to do with the sexual expectations. And this is really something that has been an issue for me for a while. I think that you is the way that we met was that you read a paper that I had written about the obligation that women have to allow sexual intercourse to take place in order to prevent the spilling of seed and how this was a massive sociological, cultural problem of forced intercourse in a sense, and that there's something that the rabbis need to do to become aware of what is the position of a woman who is made to understand that if her husband spills seed, it's her responsibility. She needs to prevent that from happening. So those are the two issues I kind of wanted to raise to get your comments. I'm going to answer the first one and leave the second one for you, Hiddis. So I think when it comes to the autonomy, one of the things that I started to lobby on was education. And everybody thinks about um, the Hasidic boys being denied an education. But you're exactly right, Tally, because what's happening in the UK, at least is there's two rounds of high school exams that are commonly sat, the first set at age 16, the second set at age 18. And all the set at age 16 are really useful for is to access the set that you do at 18 it's the set of exams you do at 18 that would help you would allow you to go to university and we've seen consistently in Haredi schools of girls autonomy being stripped away by the, the set at 18 are not really compulsory because actually you've probably got to be in, intelligent wise in the top two-thirds of the cohort to take them so we've seen we've seen girls autonomy being stripped away girls who've done exceptionally well at these exams at age 16 not being allowed to by their parents by their schools by the communities access the university entry exams at 18 the a levels and, and what that does is when the girl gets to 18 she's got no autonomy because there are no other options presented Right. So if they had A-levels, they would be able to go off to university, take out student loans and just declare themselves to be independent of their parents because they haven't been able to access the education that the government would have provided for them. And their parents have denied that. That basically means that there aren't any other options at that point, really, because they're, they're not qualified to do anything. They've got these um, sort of intermediate exams, which, yes, it means they're literate and numerate, unlike the boys, but they're not qualified really to do anything at all that basically puts them in a situation where the choice presented as an early marriage to this parent person suggested by their parents after their two years in sim is really the option that, that they have how can you consent when you don't have the tools, when you don't have the education, when you don't have the assertive? Well, so this was really apparent. So, I mean, this is a male example, but I'll just give it to you because this. So in the paper, we, we, we have these um, two characters in our appendix and the, the man who we call Diol, that's not actually his real name, but he is actually a real person. And he came to me and he said, my parents are pressurizing me forcing me of course his, his English was so limited I can't actually remember which word he used but my parents are pushing me to get married and I don't want to and I tried to help and he asked me to um, meet young people his own age he would never been to the cinema before he'd never been to a nightclub he'd never been this is obviously pre-covid this is several years you know two or three years ago now um, and I facilitated him to do all these things and actually that I got feedback from the young woman that he'd gone to the cinema with that he tried to hit like hit onto her and um, he said to me you know Eve it's going to be really difficult for me to find a girlfriend and I said yeah you're right it's going to be really difficult he, you know, he barely speaks English. He's got no cultural references. He's got very, very right wing political views, even though he loves politics. It's going to be really difficult culturally for you to find a girlfriend. And he, you know, he ended up going through with the marriage, which is unfortunately not a happy one. But it did sort of make me realise he had no money. He had no education. He had no skills. And actually, just by meeting a few people and going to the cinema a few times, he just realised how difficult it was going to be to have any other option because of what had been taken away from him in his adolescence. So, you know, I think when you're talking about no other options, this is really serious stuff. You know, it's not just that they don't have the qualifications. They just don't have the... Um, the re they're a bit like refugees in the UK, even though they've been born here. Yeah, you've said anything that I would have wanted to answer that question and, and that that term ref feeling like a refugee in your own country is something that really resonates for me as a Haredi woman who has 
um, being able to exercise autonomy um, in the outside world with great difficulty. And it's been a massive journey for me to be able to get to, to get to where I am with lots of, I don't know what plural of faux pas along the way. I, I certainly still feel sometimes like a refugee in my own country. And there's obviously now, I, now I have the confidence to stop and ask questions and not feel the need to always explain myself, but that doesn't take away from the emotional burden that that brings. And it's, it's a question of social capital. If you do, do the expected trajectory of early marriage, so universal early marriage, and you, you do what's expected of you, you maintain your social capital. But if you say no to that, the cost of doing that is sometimes just too much to bear. And then therefore that kind of really restricts how much you can say there really is true capacity to, to consent. Tally, that leads me on to an answer for your second question. Um, if when I say no to sex with first of all on the wedding night with a man who is a stranger um what's going to be the cost of me of me saying no so first of all do i even have the language right have have i gone into that situation with the language to say no or have i been told this is what's going to happen and or, or in very vague terms, not even enough information about what's going to happen. And your husband will know what to do, rely on him. And have I already been kind of pre-silenced? Some people, never mind about the language, do they have the, the physical capacity? There's, there's some color teachers who will give out benzos, so diazepam to, to colors to make them more relaxed on the wedding night. Um, and that's often seen as a kindness. Like, don't worry, take, take these couple of pills or have a glass of wine. Now, sometimes when there's two... You know, it's a couple who, who know each other and trust each other, but are having some kind of difficulty letting down their emotional barriers. It might be very helpful to say, you know, maybe you need to be on anti-anxiety medication or maybe a glass of wine would, would help you guys relax together. That's very, very different to saying, have a glass of wine or take some medication before having sex with this stranger at this very specific time that's been prescribed for you by others. So there's a, there's a question around actual physical capacity to consent. There's a question around emotional capacity to consent and having, um, and, and having those kinds of tools. And then there's also the question of what happens going forward after the wedding night itself. And like you say, that kind of worry that if you say no, what's going to be the cost? Are you going to bear the sin of your, your husband spilling his seed? Are you going to, like in my classes, I was told... And I wasn't taught by a Hasidic woman. I was taught by a Litvish woman. Um, if you say no, you can say no. But don't complain if he goes elsewhere. Just one thing I'd like to add that is sort of the, the male perspective as well. That's, you know, one of the men we spoke to said, actually, do you know what? It was really traumatic for me as well. You know, yes, I might have been the one who was perpetuating, you know, the, the, the sexual act. But actually, I was a stranger to her as well. I wasn't ready for this. I was being raped, even though I was the man in the, this um, transaction. You know, maybe I was raped by my rabbi who told me that I had to on that night. So I, I really wouldn't want to sort of label the men as rapists because of what they've been told. Because I think sometimes the men are just acting, you know, they, they accept us, Torah. They accept what the rabbi says. They accept that this is what they have to do. And maybe it doesn't, and it causes them trauma. Maybe it doesn't sink comfortably with them either. Now, that's not going to be the case for all men, for sure. But I wouldn't like to say that all men are happy with this either, because that's not what we've been told. Yeah, and, and, and that's a really, really important point, Even I really want to pick up on that. There's been this kind of narrative. Well, if you say that, and if you call it systemic, a systemic harm, you're saying that all Haredi men are rapists. On the contrary, I've never said that. I wouldn't say that. That is a really, I feel like it's kind of an attack argument that's maybe used to invalidate what we're saying. And, it, and it's, an, it's a rejection of our invitation to engage in the, in the nuance that this discussion requires. Thanks for those clarifications. And thanks for what you said, Eve, also about it not being easy for young men either. And just my clinical experience tells me that, you know, I've had so many, mostly women who have been very traumatized by this experience, but also men 
as well. And some couples have worked through it and some couples could never really work through it because the object of their trauma was a constant trigger throughout their marriage. I think this is very, I don't want to say dangerous ground that we're on, but it is sensitive in the sense that this is an entire structure. And this isn't just about forced marriage, obviously. It's also about getting out of a marriage. Um, I treat couples where, you know, the woman is stuck because to be divorced in a Hasidic society has incredible consequences. So she is often forced to stay in with a man who is leading a double life, is often not religious, is often going and having sex with other women or sex workers. And she doesn't want to be in the marriage anymore, but there are children involved and the cost to her family is too great to bear. And there are also men. Why are they living their double lives? Because they don't have the autonomy to live in an integrated way. They have to split because there's a cost to them and their family as well. So again, I think that the sensitive part of this is that we also want to be culturally sensitive and not based on these experiences, which clearly don't represent the entire social structure. We need to really be, I don't know, I think we need to tread carefully. Cultural sensitivity, but you know, this is really happening. Um, so can I, I, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to respond to that. I think it's, it's certainly a very personal topic and people, you know, especially in a society where there's a lot of repression around sex and people don't explore their sexuality before committing um, to one, not just, I'm not saying before committing to one sexual partner, but it's not as if um, their sexuality evolves and then they settle in a way. Um, you're kind of thrown headfirst into your sexuality, which has been repressed throughout your, from puberty repressed, and then the, the switch is flicked and you have to switch it on. And then it's like, figure it out together. And that's not to say it won't evolve over time, but you've only got one person for it to evolve with. And it's um, often very difficult to find somebody that you feel really comfortable talking to about these things. It's not as if it's a subject for real open discussion between friends or even family. I mean, in, 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 this is not like a Haredi problem. In general, people don't talk honestly and openly about sex enough. But we're talking about difficult and personal topics and I want to really recognize and, and honor that for some people this is even more personal than others and therefore I want to really recognize that and then also invite people to, to feel to feel that and then to move past those feelings to be able to engage in a productive discussion about about the issues that we're raising. When I hear you say culturally sensitive Tali my, my heart goes right there I just I feel it right there I feel it in my hands get clammy um, my heart starts to beat and and that's because cultural sensitivity has been used as a as an excuse to deliver second-rate services to people from minoritized communities and there's been a, a somehow accepted status quo that if a discussion is, is, is difficult or uncomfortable with certain, with certain people, we're just not going to have it. And what happens to the people suffering in that minoritized community? Well, it's just too bad. And, or or it's, it's someone else's job, or it's a job for another day. So when I hear people say, you know, we have to be culturally sensitive, I say, absolutely, please be culturally sensitive. Please recognize the very sensitive needs of everyone in this community, particularly those of internal minorities. So LGBT plus people, women, people living with disabilities or people living with long-term illness, you know, internal minorities are going to be um, struggling with these issues even more. For sure. We've seen the UK government use a cultural sensitivity with the boys' schools, and actually it's caused more harm in the long run. You know, you've got whole generations of men who barely speak English and, you know, and that's had sort of all sorts of consequences. So you sort of, I sort of sometimes wonder with these conversations around cultural sensitivity, you really need to think it through and say, well, will my cultural sensitivity harm other people? And if so, probably 
I need to be more circumspect about it. My new tagline is get uncomfortable. <laughs> That's actually a good introduction to what I want to ask Yudis and Eve, because I'm sort of playing devil's advocate. Obviously, you know, I'm on the side. I hope the side of the angels here. I agree with what you're saying. Clearly, what you're describing is a terrible phenomenon. The other extreme, I guess we could say, you describe that emotion of being a refugee in your own country, being displaced once you leave that bubble. Let's assume for the moment that the bubble isn't going away, at least not in the near future. It's going to take a while for or, things to change. Or, or, or maybe I've not, I, I've not left my bubble. Right? Whatever it might be. Okay. Yeah. Even more so. If a person is going to come from that bubble, and also Eve, for example, you talked about that particular young man who went to a cinema for the first time and then realized how difficult it was going to be, all sorts of situations like this. There are also people who will tell you, I'm sure, that, what do you mean? The system worked great for me? I'm happy that my parents chose my partner. Yeah. Given all of that, isn't it possible that by introducing people within that bubble to that which is outside the bubble to a different possibility, we're just exchanging one bad thing for another tragic situation where now that person isn't comfortable in a different world? Or, for example, that person might have had a situation where he or she would have been comfortable being married. They were happy with the situation and now they feel uncomfortable. I, I understand. So look, I think when it comes to the Hasidic community, you know, let's be realistic. We're not talking about moving away from a shidduch system here. We're really not. It's not going to happen. That's not going to happen. And actually, it's not really what we would want to happen anyway. What we're talking about is a shidduch system with some agency in it. If the first person you meet is actually the right person for you, he's going to be the right person for you after half an hour meeting and he'll be the right person for you after you've met him five times or eight times. And actually, if he's not the right person for you, then you can say no. And if he is the right person, well, after a number of meetings, you'll be able to say yes with agency, knowing that there would be no stigma to say no. So I really think this sort of binary thing, it's like, you know, a lot of the time when I meet these um, unhappy Hasidim, and, you know, they come to my house and they have a conversation with me and, you know, my husband's there and we discuss that we're Shomer Shabbat and that we have a community and we have people for Shabbat meals all the time, obviously not in the last year, but normally that they're sort of very much like, oh, OK, because they've got this binary that they've really understood and the binary is this or nothing. And actually, I'm not what they expect at all. I've had... Um, doubting Haredin that I've discussed that like Jewish feminist um, halacha with and they're just amazed that I understand halacha at all because that's just not what they understood would be when they meet somebody from outside their world. Well that's a well-known phenomenon that very often in some extreme Hasidic communities it's either that way or you're the same as a secular Jew there's simply no difference it doesn't matter if you're what we'd call modern orthodox right it's one not, of the, not understood. For sure and one of the difficult conversations I have and I'm having this conversation with somebody at the moment is you know he approaches me he wants to leave Stanford Hill with his family he, I know he's not Shomer Shabbos, he wants to send his kids to the school that my daughter was at, which um, she left recently. But And I sort of say, look, at that school, nobody cares if your wife covers her hair or not. Nobody cares what you wear on holiday. Nobody cares if you go to the cinema. But like, all the parents of that school keep Shabbos. And if you don't keep Shabbos, that's really not the right school. And, you know, it's very hard, to, you know, to get a head around that. So I think this, this you know, this binary thing, we're, we're not talking about, you know, don't do these Hasidic Shidduchim and just go to a nightclub and meet whoever you want and sleep around. That's really not what we're saying. But alter the model enough that you give each person the agency. Again, you know, going back to the school point, I believe that all those girls, all the girls who are intelligent enough should be able to do the A-levels and the subjects that will enable university access. You're right, they might not all go, but to take away the chance for them to go is taking away their autonomy. And the same with the marriage. You know, they need to be told, you know what? It's unlikely the first person will be right. That's okay. It's unlikely you'll know straight away, get to know them. If you agree to get engaged and you change your mind, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You know, and I think that, that this is, really not a binary thing and I really would want to move away from binary conversations really as far as we possibly can. Yeah and when we're not looking to reinvent the wheel this kind of shaduchim is already practiced broadly and widely across the Jewish world you know the type of shaduch that, that Eve described is the type that is very very common in in um, other Haredi communities outside the Hasidic world and there's no reason um, why the Hasidic communities 
or or other communities where where there is that kind of lack of autonomy have to choose one or the other what we're saying what we're offering is an invitation and we're we're saying yes rabbi scott absolutely it could be that some people previously felt comfortable and now suddenly had their eyes opened i really don't think that that's what's happening i think what's what's is much more likely is that the people who this doesn't speak to will carry on their lives as they did before. And the people that this resonates with will be empowered to offer something different to their own children. I'd like to comment on all this because what's going through my mind is the idea that, yes, obviously, as Western cultural norms seep into the Haredi lifestyle, it becomes more and more difficult for the Haredi lifestyle to sustain itself. That's something we need to really understand, that the Haredi lifestyle is precipitated on maintaining a very specific code that's based on kind of insular beliefs and keeping people away from other kinds of cultural norms. So what I'd like to do is move this kind of away from whether Haredim have binary thinking or whether this stuff about marriage is because people are going off the derech or whatever. And I also don't want it to be about, I mean, I, I think that we need to maintain a great deal of respect for Hasidish cultures as well as all cultures that are based on a real set of values. What I actually want to say about forced marriage is that there are messages in the Shidduch system throughout the Haredi and even to the modern Orthodox circles that we need to address. For example, a yeshivish woman who I was working with told me she was in a very unhappy marriage. And what she told me was that she was told by her Beis Yaakov teacher in 12th grade that there is a special schut for a young woman who gets engaged to the first guy that she dates. And being a very high achiever and one of the best girls in her class, her identity was very much based on getting those chuyot. And so if the best thing to do is to marry the first guy, that's what she should do. But she ignored the red flags because um, she really wanted to do the right thing. The other thing is that I think we need to do better in our education around choosing a life partner, what we need to look for, what is emotional intimacy, how do we connect? And again, when we're talking about a bishow, you know, which is a short meeting of 20 minutes to an hour after which, or maybe twice, after which the l'chaim is, is made, there's very much a dependency on the parents to kind of look at the traits and match these kids together, which they do, and they do in the yeshivish world too. They really try very hard to match young people up according to how they believe that they will connect. But the idea is that they need to connect. That connection needs to happen. Tali, on that, we've had several people approach us to say that when they were matched up in that way, the parents did think carefully about it, but it wasn't necessarily in the children's interest. For example, the person who was thinking about being a bit less from was married to somebody extremely rigid and strict to keep them into line. So from the parents' point of view, that makes perfect sense because that's what's going to keep their son-in-law in a very strict daughter-in-law. But from the son's point of view, that's just setting up tension in the marriage. It's really important to understand that it's not just about getting to know the person that you're getting married to. It's about getting to know yourself. There has been an emphasis on, you know, getting married before you develop as a person and then developing as a person within that marriage together with your spouse. And there's a lot to be said for, you know, going on that, you know, growing up together. I remember my sister got engaged when she was 17 and uh, her husband at the time was 18. And I remember she always used to say, we needed a double buggy for the both of us. Um, a, a, a buggy for your American listeners is a stroller. They literally grew up together and there can be great beauty in that. But for some people, not knowing who you are as a person and maybe not having the language for your LGBT status or, or other issues that Eve was talking about, you're setting not just your spouse up for failure, you're setting yourself up to fail. Tally, when you talk about connection, lots of young people don't even know what connection looks like. And this is, again, it's not unique to the Haredi community at all. If, if your example is, is your, your family and 
and I often think of the, you know, the angels on Friday night coming to see your Shabbos table. And if they see a harm, you know, a harmonious Shabbos table with people sitting around connecting with each other and they say, Mitzvah Shem, you should have the same thing next week. And if they see uh, uh, people arguing or people not ready for Shabbos and they say, well, in Mitzvah Shem, you should have the same thing next week. Sometimes I feel like that with young people getting married. If they've had a really good example of a marriage to look back on, they probably will figure it out with each other, barring any extraneous circumstances. But if they haven't had a particularly good connecting example from their own parents, what hope is there for them? Now that we're talking about solutions, I have a few different questions that are really just running through my mind. So the first question is almost a prelude to discussing how solutions are possible. I want to know how people in many Hasidic communities look at the concept of forced marriage. I'll explain what I mean. If they were to listen to this, would they say, we don't have forced marriages, and they simply don't understand that what they're doing is a forced marriage, and somehow, if theoretically it were explained to them properly and sensitively, they would say, oh, you're right, this is a problem, or is their attitude, whether it's said in these words or not, something more like, yeah, you're right, it is basically forced, but that's okay, it's worked for 2,000 years, we're okay with it. So that's my first question. What's the general attitude, in your opinion, of how these communities look at it? So... I think it's whether you're talking to somebody who's part of the PR machine or you get somebody in a completely private moment where they've got no idea and, you know, it's on Shabbos and they know they're not going to be recorded. So let's start with the PR example, because we've, we actually have an example of this. Um, Yehudis went on um, BBC Four's um, Women's Hour when, the day that we launched the paper on the 8th of February um, and she was on it with um, Chaya Spitz. And Chaya denied the existence of Tanoim. Now, we expected her to be uncomfortable with the term forced marriage, you know, that that we both expected. Can you just define that for some of our listeners who oh, may sorry, not be? Oh, sorry, Tanoim is the, the engagement contract, um, which really is something that happens at pretty much every Hasidic engagement. And what's interesting is it's signed in public. So, you know, not everybody knows what's written down in it, but people see it being signed. It's part of the engagement party. So, you know, it's not like this has done something that's done in secret. And she denied that such a thing even exists. And, you know, somebody actually phoned me up and said, but she wasn't mine. <laughs> like, how? How is that possible? If you try to speak to somebody in public, there'll just be a complete flat denial, even if it's lies. But what about a parent? Does a parent think before they sign the Tanaim that this really is forcing their child? Or do they say, no, really, she's not really being forced or he's not being forced? Well, I think for a lot of them, they think they're doing what's right. You know, these are loving parents. They've done some research on the family. The model is for their child to get married. And that's what, you know, that's what they've expected. They found somebody suitable. Their child's gone along with it for whatever reason. And the, the parent thinks they're doing the right thing. I really would hope that when the parent's signing this Tanaim agreement, they're not thinking, oh, my goodness, my daughter's so unhappy, but I've got to do it. I really hope they're thinking this is, you know, the, you know even if she's a little bit on the edge, well, this is what, 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 what's best for her. Um, I think, though, when you start to get people privately and you start to have conversations with them, I think you do hear something else. I mean, they might not say, yes, this is a forced marriage, but that's mainly because, as we discussed at the beginning, they don't really understand what the law is. So one of the things that I really want to mention this for your listeners, after the first round of um, the paper we wrote, but before we published the final thing, we spent a lot of time with the National Commission on Forced Marriage UK speaking to um, the, the person who runs the organisation, as well as the allies that she has. We had a round table with them. And the reason it was really important to us is we didn't want to publish this. You know, neither of us are lawyers. And, and you know, before this, neither of us were experts in the forced marriage arena. And we really wanted to sit around the table with everybody in the UK who is an expert in the forced marriage arena and the forced marriage legislation, including lawyers, including um, politicians, and really understand what was the intention of Parliament when the legislation was decided? What do the lawyers think? What is the legislation supposed to catch? How has this been dealt with in other insular faith communities? And we went through each of the markers and the context that are in the paper, you know, almost on a line by line basis. And I don't really care so much whether the Haredi community say this is or isn't forced marriage. We're talking about a legal term and we've covered ourselves by speaking to all the experts in the field to make sure that, you know, it's not just, you know, we spoke to a few Hasidim and they told us what their experience was. And I said, oh, that sounds a bit coerced. And I wrote it. No, we went through this with experts in UK law, several of them over an extended period of time. And we had conversations. So I think, you know, when you get them in private, you, you can have a different conversation. 
we found as well, and, and this is sort of inf- both makes me happy and infuriates me, that there's people in the Hasidic community who are real upstanding members of the community and they tow the party line and, you know, all that, but they will quietly say to you, you know what, you're onto something here. And that leads to my follow-up about that UK legislation. I think it was an act of parliament in 2014, you wrote. I want to know if you advocate actually enforcing the law, meaning obviously the law is the law, but is that your goal? Let's get some of these people arrested or is it that almost a threat that's behind the scenes (laughs) and really that's not what you're trying to do here? What's your goal in terms of that solution? Okay, so from a from a legislative perspective, we're we're not looking at starting with enforcement. What we're looking at is to have people recognize a duty. And that's a very different thing. So first of all, there's a duty on a private citizen to acknowledge the law, but there's also duties that fall on other people, like social workers and um, and other people with statutory authority, whether that's a general practitioner seeing, you know, a young girl who comes to them and says, you know, I, I'm getting married in a week and I need a prescription of, of norethisterone to stop my periods. What duty does that GP have in that moment? They, they have safeguarding responsibilities, right? So if there was a child where they suspected abuse, they would have to screen for abuse. And what the legislation does here is whether if there is enough awareness that forced marriage is occurring in certain communities and that a girl asking in that way for, for or, or attending with her mother asking in that way for nor- a prescription of norethisterone is, is maybe a red flag for a safeguarding situation. There is a duty on, on that general practitioner to maybe arrange for the mother to leave the room and ask a couple of questions. Mm-hmm. So what the legislation is inviting is, is not necessarily enforcement. It's creating a duty on both private citizens, but also those in statutory positions of power to help people and facilitate better shidduch processes in a community. We're almost out of time. I do have one question I'd like to ask before we conclude. I mentioned at the beginning that you both are co-founders of an organization called Nachamu. Could you please tell us what Nachamu is? So I started the story earlier, so I'm going to just pick up there and I'll let Yehudas tell the rest. So Yehudas and I um, had the conversation, you know, I was lobbying on the schools, which, which we've gone into a little bit more detail. Yehudas was lobbying on covering up of abuse um, and also on autonomy generally. And we started thinking about these are harms. These are not right, harms arising from bad people. These are harms arising because of the, the structure in the community. And in particular, with the schools, basically it's, it's okay, there's, you found a loophole in the law, but basically it's a human rights abuse to deny your son an education. So we started saying, wait a minute, what, other, what else is there? What other systemic harms are there? Particularly systemic harms that we can pin on something which is against the law, because that's one of the UK government's measures of extremism is when um, lack of respect for, for UK law. Um, and it's also it's easier to lobby on things where there's a structure already in place. So we came up with these harms. So the forced marriage, the lack of education, the coerced criminality, the not reporting abuse and the autonomy generally. Um, and we realised that we had come up with a structure of things of these were all systemic harms in the community so it was basically it was me you had us and we had a third person who basically ended up having to drop out for personal reasons but we were floating these ideas off us and then the next stage i'll let you just continue how we took that forward yeah so we were really really lucky to not been able just not not just being able to raise the issues but to be listened to and we were able to bring other people on board who were real experts first of all in extremism so what extremism looks like in other cultures, whether it's Islamist extremism or far right or far left. Um, so having somebody join us from the Quilliam Foundation, which is a counter extremism organization, and then also from the Institute of Strategic Dialogue, uh, which is also a, a different um, UK based counter extremism organization, having uh, Daniel Jonas, our chair, come, who comes from an interfaith background, and Ben. <laughs> and, and Ben. Ben Ben Crown is an awesome person who's just like a community community macher is probably the best way to uh, And knows everybody and everything. Knows everybody and, and knows how to get things done. So we were able to surround ourselves with really good people to take the ideas that Eve and I were bringing and think about how to move that into an organization that that had capacity to really produce pieces like like we have done and be able to, to engage in what we call thought leadership 
And we have absolutely succeeded in, in, in thought leadership. I mean, if you go onto the Khadri Khadarim or, or these kind of um, websites and you see threads on people discussing forced marriage in Yiddish, I mean, we've, we've not going to have everybody agree with us, but we have certainly been able to start the conversation and bring this into people's consciousness. I think the, the COVID, what's happened with COVID is that it's basically accelerated everything we've done probably by about three years, because I think that like or not the Haredi community in the UK, but certainly in other countries as well, have made themselves very visible by not following the laws. I, I think we sort of predicted that would happen. Um, but what it's meant is we've just had a bigger audience for a lot of the stuff that we've said. And that's why I think the paper, you know, has just been listened to so widely. This has been a very important conversation, even if at times it's been quite disturbing. And we certainly appreciate you came on the show with us today. Eve Sachs and Hudis Fletcher, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having both of us. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast, share and tell your friends about it, and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That really helps get the word out. Join the Orthodox Conundrum discussion group on Facebook and like and follow the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook. Visit jewishcoffeehouse.com to find some of the best podcasts in the Jewish world, including Chochmat Ashim, Intimate Judaism, The Maimonides Minute, The Francisca Show, Let My People Eat, and more. Please also join the Jewish Coffee House team as a Patreon subscriber. Patreon subscribers get great bonus podcasts, excellent merch, and more while helping Jewish Coffee House to reach our growing audience. You can find a link to Patreon in the description of the podcast. Finally, if you are interested in having your own podcast, Jewish Coffee House can help make it happen. We will assist you with anything you need. We can teach you the skills to make a podcast that sounds as good as an FM radio show. We can help you with recording, editing, music, graphic art, promotion, and more. We can give you tips on podcast styles, interviewing hosts, guests, and everything else you need to make your podcast the best it can be. Whatever you need, Jewish Coffee House will work with you to make it happen and make it better than you imagined. Write to me at scott, S-C-O-T-T, at jewishcoffeehouse.com and let me help you get started reaching hundreds or even thousands of people with a high-quality podcast. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. Jewish